struck by how far in the deep end I was thrown by being asked to give five minutes on Revelation 11. So here we go, Revelation 11. I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshippers. But exclude the outer courts, do not measure it, because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months, and I will appoint my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands, and they stand before the Lord of the earth. So if anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. They have powers to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying, and they have the power to turn waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Now, when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower them and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the public square of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from every people, tribe, language and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. But after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, while their enemies looked on. At the very hour there was a severe earthquake, and a tenth of the city collapsed. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake and survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. The third woe is coming soon. This is the word of the Lord. Right, uh, as is unsurprising, I am both unable to tell you what that means and even if I was able to tell you what that means, unable to articulate it within five minutes in a way that would be comprehensive or useful to you. So instead, what I'm going to riff on uh, is the idea of the kind of broad principles that we see about the idea of witnessing uh, in this. Because this is fundamentally, it's about lots of other stuff that I don't understand. But at its heart, it's a passage about how God uses witnesses to witness to him and uh, the different contexts that works. So let's start with this idea. Uh, the theologians uh, Stanley Halvas and Charles Pinches uh, talk about, highlight a tension around how different people approach witnessing. They highlight that whereas for most people in modern society, the idea that we would worship a God that would need witnesses or would use witnesses would in some way prove him to be a God not worthy of worship. That if people need to come and kind of tell us about God, then that points to something about God being deficient, that God being lacking, because why can't he just show himself? Why can't he just universally be evident to everyone and accessible by reason or some other means for everyone? But what Halvas and Pinches argue is that instead, the very fact that God uses witnesses, were he not to use witnesses, he could not be the God's trinity that we worship in the Bible. So they say there's something integral to the idea of witnessing into the shape and the the nature of the God that we worship. What does that mean? 
Well, I think they're getting at the fact that when we talk about witness, when we talk about knowing God, we are talking about not a universal principle, not some rules or a system or ideas, but we are talking about the particular. We are talking about the person of Jesus. We are talking about embodied encounter with the incarnated Lord. And therefore, to witness, to, to meaningfully know about that person, we either need to encounter him, or in the first instance, we need to be told about him by people who have also encountered him. So the embodied witness, the storied witness, the means by which we tell people about our story with Jesus, the particularity of witness speaks to the particularity of the Son of God as incarnated in Jesus Christ and points to the very particular kind of God that Christians worship. Why does that matter? It matters, one, because it's the nature of God and it's true, but secondly, principles won't keep you going. In this literally apocalyptic situation in which a beast is ruling over town, where there is political oppression, uh, people are being killed and persecuted for believing the truth, principles won't keep you going. Instead, what we see here is that witnesses appointed by Christ, people who know and love and serve Jesus, that relationship, that encounter is the thing that keeps them going in persecution. So again, the challenge for us today is, are we running on principles, ideas about God, or are we running on the encounter with the person, the particular man, Jesus? Witnessing is speech. It's joining in, as we see in this passage, with the witness of heaven, even, in fact, with the witness of the Trinity as they speak about each other and witness to the nature of each other. It's joining in with this constant cacophony of truth-telling, It's speech, it's action, it's the whole of life. We see, again, those witnesses, they live out and they live and die on this message. There needs to be an integrity between our actions and our words. And we see also in this passage, very interestingly, the power and the spiritual reality that is manifest when these witnesses are put on the margins, when they are persecuted, when they are put in sackcloth, clothes of mourning. And in poverty and in marginality, through truth-telling, they have access to power. They are taught about as lampstands, as trees. So there's a truth that even in our weakness, even when we feel inadequate, we can still point to God. How of us and pinches elsewhere point to the fact that even when the disciples mess up, but they are somehow still pointing to God, even by the contrast that they themselves set between them and Jesus. Uh, Elsewhere, Rowan Williams, in his Gifford lectures, talks about the idea that in the silence and gaps in our speech, when we reach points that we can't even begin to express, even that somehow gestures to the reality of God, gestures to a reality outside of our articulation, outside of our understanding. Marin Robinson says that we live on an island of uh, words which we tend to mistake for reality itself. When we reach silence, we almost reach the kind of the beach and we recognize the ocean and in the ocean is God. So there's a spiritual reality that when we come on to poverty and margins, we access. But finally, we see that witnessing literally in the Greek is martyrdom. Death itself is a form of truth-telling. It points to the cross and the hope beyond the cross. There is a fascinating tension in this passage about the the protection that God gives these witnesses for when they are witnessing, that no one can come against them, that fire comes out of their mouth, that they have control over the elements. But when their time has come, when their appointed time is ended, they die. 
So there is, there is a, there, there is, there is a hardness there, but there is also comfort, because we know that God won't protect us from all kinds of harm in this life. But we see in this passage is that God will protect us from that which impedes our call. So the things that you have been called to do, God will make sure they are unimpeded ultimately, and He will bring them to conclusion. And when that is over, you will die. Maybe not killed by a beast, but you will die. But that's not the end of the story. Amen.